Take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians this morning. Great scene this morning. Thank you, worship team and our tech guys back there for putting everything together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know if the the words on my page are getting smaller or my eyes are getting worse. (laughs) It's probably my eyes, you think, huh? Things are getting blurrier and blurrier all the time. He's a pastor. Um, His name is Tony Campolo. He's a pastor and he's a writer. I don't necessarily agree with him on on several issues, but uh, he was telling the story as he was flying from California to Philadelphia. Uh, Late at night, it was a stormy night. Very dark, uh, very foggy, very wet, just kind of a miserable night. And uh, as he was flying from California back to Philadelphia, uh, he had a guy sitting next to him, and the guy kind of realized that he was a a Christian. And uh, the guy made the statement, well, I believe that going to heaven is kind of like going to Philadelphia. And uh, Tony kind of, you know, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you can get there by plane, you can get there by train, you can get there by car, you can get there by boat if you have to, I guess. You can get there by your feet. You know, just lots of ways to get to uh, Philadelphia. And uh, Campolo writes that as we started descending into Philadelphia, that the place was just really foggy and the wind was blowing. You could just kind of tell that the plane was a little bit uneasy as they were starting to land, uh, heading towards a pattern to start to land. And uh, the, the rain was flowing and everybody's kind of getting nervous and kind of getting uptight. And he says, as we were circling in the fog, I turned to uh, to the guy uh, and to the theological, he called him a theological expert on my right, and he said, I'm certainly glad the pilot doesn't agree with your theology. And the guy looked at him and said, what in the world do you mean? He said, the people in the control booth are giving instructions to the pilot, coming north by northwest, three degrees, you're on beam, you're on beam, don't deviate from the beam. He said, I'm glad the pilot's not saying, there are many ways into this airport, There are many approaches we can take. I'm glad he's saying there's only one way we can land this plane, and I am going to stick with it. Aren't you glad about that? You don't have pilots that are just going, well, wherever, you know, they got lots of runways. Eeny, meeny, miny, no, we don't want to go that direction. They stick to it. And Paul here, what in our passage we're going to look at today, he was very passionate about getting that one message out, the message of of the gospel. There's a, listen, church, there's only one way to heaven. Amen? There's only one way to God, and it's through the Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So if you're planning on another way, you need to rethink your plan, all right? You need to rethink your, your, your paradigm of how you're going to get to heaven, because it's all about Jesus. And this is what Paul's outlook was when it came to uh, the gospel. Here is a guy who was very passionate about the gospel, as we've been talking about that over the past uh, several months. He thought that uh, there was another way. Paul's way, he thought was, when his name was Saul, he thought that way was obey the law, right? Be a good Pharisee, be a good Hebrew, be a good man, and uh, serve those religious leaders, right? Which he was one, one of them. But then he realized the big picture, he realized there was something other than the law, and that was King Jesus when he came face to face with him on the road to Damascus, and realized that his outlook, his passion, was changing from the law to the gospel. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, "Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." 
Romans 1.16, which we preached on a couple of months ago. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2, preach the word. In other words, preach the gospel. Be instant, in season, out of season. Jesus said to his followers, as you go, preach. Why? Because I want you to persuade men how to get to heaven. And that's our message today. We persuade men. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10 is where we're going to start. If you would, stand with me. Actually, verse number 9. Stand with me if you would out of respect to God's word. We're going to read verses 9 through 15. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth here, and he says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, here it is, we persuade men. Everybody say, we persuade, persuade men. We persuade men. Just don't stutter in the middle of it like I did, right? But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Father, we pray your blessing on the word of God today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul's passion changed. Switch gears. It went from the law to the gospel. And one thing I know about the gospel, one thing I know about anything, if you're passionate about something, you're going to talk about it, right? I mean, if you're passionate about cooking, you can't help but talk about cooking. If, you, if you're passionate about eating, amen, anybody passionate about eating? Yeah, yeah, we, we like talking about eating, don't we? It's like every service we have, every message I preach, we got it. Food. <laughs> it's got to be plugged in there somehow, right? We're passionate about eating. Anything you're passionate about, you're going to be more than willing to talk about. If you're passionate about sports, guess what you're going to do? You're going to talk about it. Whether it's the Rays or the Bucks or the Bolts or, or whoever it is, you know, you're going to talk about it. Whatever you are passionate about, you will talk about. It's just part of our psyche. It's part of the way that we are made up. Paul says here, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. What does that tell you about Paul? Man, he was passionate about the gospel. He says the love of God, uh, it, this just constrains me, it compels me, it controls me. This is a passionate thing for me. So we have to conclude that if we go day after day and week after week and month after month and even sometimes year after year without telling someone about Jesus, then you must not be very passionate about the gospel. I've asked this question hundreds of times over my years of ministry. When was the last time you shared the precious love of Jesus with somebody? I'm not talking about a good deed, although good deeds are good. I'm talking about you shared the life-transforming message of the gospel with an individual. This is why we've been talking about the whole Who's Your One initiative, the campaign. Who is your one? 
I hope you've been taking those prayer guides and praying for that one. And I hope by now you've done it so much that you're realizing that those prayer guides are geared toward your one, whoever that one is, in the various ways you can pray for them and their, their salvation. But nonetheless, Paul was passionate about the gospel. Are you passionate about the gospel? Am I passionate about the gospel? If we are, we're going to persuade men. Today, I want to share with you three realities as we look through this passage today. I want you to see the ambitious reason for persuading men, the appealing recipe, and the amazing result as we look at this passage today. First of all, I want you to see in verses 9 and 10 the ambitious reason, the ambitious reason. Paul gives two here. Verse number 9, he says, therefore, we make it our aim. In other words, our end result, the very last thing. This is what we're shooting for. This is the standard. This is the goal. What is it? Whether present or absent, Paul says, whether either we're there or we're not there, to do what? To be well pleasing to him. First thing Paul says is, my reasoning is, I want to please God. I've got to get this gospel out. Why? Because I want to please God. This is going to be God's looking at me and looking at my life and saying, you know what, I'm pleased with him. Why? Because he's telling everybody about me. He's sharing this precious message. The word uh, ambition uh, that's used here when he says, this is our aim to be well-pleasing to him. In some of your translations, the word aim is ambition. Uh, It's actually a a two-sided word. Part of it is phileo, which means love, which we know that. And the other one is tomeo, which means honor. In other words, we're going to make it our love and our honor. We're going to make it our aspiration. We're going to make it our ambition to preach the gospel. Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says, I and aspire to preach the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul said, make it your ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. He says, this is what we want to do. Listen, this is the highest goal. Anybody in here want to please God? Anybody? Amen, I do too. I want to please God. Paul says, this is how we please God, by getting this message out. It's our highest goal, to please God. Ephesians 5.10, Paul wrote, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Philippians 4.18, giving what is well-pleasing to God. Give to please God. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Boys and girls, are y'all out there? Where you at, boys and girls? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Boys and girls, let me see you. Come on, Jenna. I'll tell you, you can even yell at me. Say, hey! Oh, gosh. It's okay. The preacher said it's all right. Look at me wave and say, hey. They're scared to death. My parents are going to get a talking to after church. Look at me. You ready? You know what that verse says? Do you got, let me ask you this first. Do you want to please God with your lives? Look at me. You can just give me a head nod. You obviously don't want to talk, which is highly unusual in church. Kids usually want to talk during church. Not today, I guess. Do you want to please God? Yes or no? What does that verse say? One of the ways you can please God? What does it say? Obey your parents. And all the parents said, amen Amen to that. Isn't that the truth? How do I please God? Obey your parents. That's what Colossians 3.20 says. Paul says, my ambition is to please God. Man, I remember growing up, playing ball. I always looked for my parents. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, you get up to the plate to hit, and it was like any time I got up to the plate to hit, my parents were always in my, my line of sight. You know, if I was a right-handed hitter, and I'd, I'd get up there and I'd position myself in the box. And if I'm there, my dad would be, if he wasn't coaching and not in the dugout, he was in my line of sight. He was right there. You know, you walk up to the plate, and what do you do? You can, where's dad? 
you know. Why? Because I want to please my dad, you know. I want to please my dad. When Evan played uh, ball at a, 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 another Christian school in the area, uh, he played football. And uh, on offense, he was their center. He did a really good job of that. He was their starting center. And on defense, he played linebacker. And every now and again, he would, I could just, you know, I'm just, I'm, as a dad, this is me, okay, yes, yes, coaches, I'm one of those parents who stands on the sidelines and coaches from the sideline, okay? Get over yourselves, coaches. Um, some of us have a few things to share, as it is. Anyway, I would do that, and every now and again, I'd go, yep. Now, he knew when I went, yep, he knew I was talking to him. In my house, it's E, yep, yep. Ethan, Evan, Aaron. That's that, I, I'm sorry, two-syllable words bother me, okay? So I just I make the noise. And when I, Ed, he'd be down, you know, in his position. And i go, yeah! And all of a sudden, he'd go, you know, kind of like, almost like a dog, you know, whenever you call the dog, then they just, yes, Father, <laughs> you know? Why would he do that? He wouldn't ignore me. And, I, of course, I wouldn't ca- call his name right when the play was going or anything, but I would call him, you know, get, 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 you need to get lower, you know? Come to this, come this way, it's coming this way. I'd look at the formation and see what was, I thought was about to happen. Why would he do that, though? Because we want to be pleasing to our parents, right? Don't we? I mean, I want to make my mom and daddy proud. How about y'all? Yeah, that's Paul. I want to please God. I want to get the gospel out there. I want to please God with this. But his second reasoning, his ambitious reason was this. I know that there's a judgment coming. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear. I want you to underline two words there. Must and all. Those are very strong words in the Greek. Must means it's going to happen. There's no doubt here. And all means what? Everything. All means all, and that's all all means, right? Everything. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let me explain a couple things here. First of all, the word judgment, that's the beam of judgment. He's speaking here of believers. There's two judgments. There's a great white throne judgment where sinners will be judged for their sins. Then there's the beam of judgment where Christians will be judged for their works, not their sins. Their sins were judged where? At the cross. Those are taken care of. Those are covered by the blood of Christ. Okay, but we'd be judged for our works, and the, I, don't let those, those last few words there, whether good or bad. Okay, that's not talking about sin. All right, the word bad there is not the Greek word uh, kakos, which means evil, wicked, or sinful. That's not the word it's used there. The word that's used there means worthless or useless. In other words, what you did for God was it really for God? Did it really make a difference, or did you do it with the wrong motives? Did you do it because you had to do it? Did you do it because you were on the schedule? Did you do it because, well, the pastor kept twisting my arm? And that, that's what he's saying here. You're going to be judged, and you, you, uh, we won't turn to it, because, uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of how all of his works one day will be tested by fire. And the ones that were worthless, what's going to happen to them? Burned up. I hope I don't have a whole lot burned up. Amen? I hope mine's like gold. Silver and precious stone, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. So it'll last. But Paul says, listen, you want to know why I'm doing this? Because, man, I know there's a judgment coming. I know there's a time coming when I'm going to stand before the very King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm going to give an account for what I have done and for, listen, and for what I have not done and what I did in the flesh and with bad motives. Listen, this happens in church every day, in church life. 
It's happened to you. It's happened to me. You ever find yourself doing things just because you have to? Mm-hmm. You go into it. Be honest. Who's with me? Anybody? Bless God, my hair. My There's a judgment coming. That stuff's not going to count. You know what the worst time of the year for students is for most of them? You know what the worst time of the year is? Report card time. Now, for some of them, they're like, I'm good. I got this. You know, I make good grades. Others who are overachievers, I've got to make straight A's. I have got to make straight I don't know what I, if I don't make straight A's. My dad is going to have so much trouble. I don't know what. You know, you got those. And then you got those who are like, hey, whatever, man. <laughs> you know, if, if I make it, I make it. If I don't, whatever, you know, as long as I scoot by with my D's, you know. But you know deep down in their heart when that day comes, especially if there's a subject that's kind of, And they're thinking, oh, man, here it comes. When I was, uh, I know this was a long time ago, my brother, okay? <laughs> Elementary school, middle school, high school, we got these brown envelopes, and the, about that big, and uh, had the report card slipped in there. And I remember getting that, and they would give it to us. And, you know, you're getting ready to pull that thing out, and your heart is pounding especially if you're not sure, <laughs> which about most of the time I wasn't sure, you know. That's what this is. It's report card time. And God's report card, don't lie. Amen. There are no mistakes. I know we got teachers. I know myself when I was a teacher, there were times where I would put in the incorrect grade. You know, you're punching the keys and you put in, let's say, a 40 instead of an 80, you know, or something like that. And you just, you know, you, and you don't realize it until you get that phone call. And I'm sure, Dr. Martin, you, at one point, somebody, you know, in, in our careers here, you've dealt with a parent who said, well, how did my child get in here? You go back and look at your grade book, and it's like, oh, no, they didn't make that grade. I just hit the wrong key, you know. We make mistakes. Listen, with God's report card, there is no mistake. There is no mistake. God gets it exactly right. Paul says, listen, I've got to tell the gospel. I've got to share the gospel. I've got everything to be, everything's got to be about the gospel. Why? Because there's a judgment coming, and we will, we will be Rewarded for what we have and have not done. Number two, not only is there an ambitious reason, but number two, there's an, uh, uh, an appealing recipe. An appealing recipe. Look at verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Boy, that's a pretty good one, isn't it? Woo! Why, what, what am I supposed to do? Why am I supposed to do? There you go. The terror of the Lord. We persuade men. There's a the title of our message. But we are well known to God, and I also trust, watch this now, are well known in your consciences. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that he has become an open book. What do I do when it comes to sharing the gospel? And I want to please God, and I know there's a judgment coming, but in, in, in sharing the gospel with somebody, I want this to be appealing to them. I want the, them to be able to respond to it well. You know, Paul says, you know what? I'm an open book to these guys. How, did, how was he an open book? He was with them for 18 months. He shared life with them for 18 months. He did life with them. Everything about them, uh, him, he, they knew. In Acts chapter 18, verse 11, it says that he spent three months with them. He, and he says, listen, you know us. You know our hearts. You know our plans. You know our character. You know our integrity. You know our ministry. You know our lives. You know us. I'm an open book to you. This is what we've been talking about with this whole who's your one thing, building those relationships. Listen, if you start building those relationships, people will get to know you, won't they? 
They'll get to know not just, they won't get to know you at church, they'll get to know the real you. Yeah, we have split personalities, don't we? Go ahead, do this, it's all right. We have split personalities. Often we're one thing at church and we're another thing at the, at the house and at the grocery store in front of the television, watching the ball game, you know, all right? Yeah. Paul says, you know us. You know what we're truly like. And that's an appealing reason for them to possibly accept Christ, to see the life-transforming power of God in your own life, to be that open book for them. I wonder if we had just a lineup in here of your neighbor, or even mine, neighbors, our coworkers, our boss, our fellow parents that we might see at the ball field or at the gym or at the, the workout facility or whatever, what they would say about each one of us that they knew. What would they say? What would they say? Paul says, listen, we are well known in your consciousness. We're going to be an open book to you, and we are an open book to you. Two, turning my attention toward others. Look, for, look at verse 12. Paul says, we don't commend ourselves to you, again to you. We're not, we're not going to do that. But give you opportunity to, to boast on our behalf. We give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf. Did you catch that? We turn our, Paul says, I'm turning my attention towards you, towards others. I'm not making this about me. I'm making this about you. We're giving you the opportunity, he says here, to speak for us, to speak for the kingdom of heaven. They've already heard from us. Now it's their turn to speak of us to others when it comes to sharing the gospel. I'm not going to boast about my accomplishments, my agenda, my name, my plans, but I give you the opportunity to step up and take advantage of that opportunity, step up to the plate, and take a big swing if you have to. It's all right. At least you're up at the plate taking a swing. I'd much rather be up at the plate taking a swing than the dugout keeping a scorebook. Amen? I'd rather be in the ball game playing ball. Whenever uh, I played uh, a lot of baseball growing up, from age six all the way into college, and uh, my my uh, uh, position that I played for most of my life was catcher. I love playing catcher. Why? I'm involved on every pitch. And that, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? Please, shake your head so at least I know you're awake, all right? Doesn't that make sense, though? Every play I'm involved in, every pitch, it doesn't matter. I, and I love that. I love that. All right? And that's what Paul's saying here. I don't want to boast of myself. I want you to boast about the kingdom. I want you to boast about the message. I want... Uh, my attention to be turned towards you and giving you opportunity. Listen, church, this is why we have evangelism training. This is why we have some of us who are involved with discipleship. This is why we have Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. This is why we have faith builders. This is why we have Man Up Monday coming up here tomorrow. This is why we have ladies, ladies, his radiance. Why? So we could turn our attention to the training and building up of the saints and possibly believers getting a, a say, or unbelievers being saved. You see? Turning our attention towards Others, you know, I, I read a book, and I think I shared this with you long ago. Uh, it's called I Am a Church Member. The whole uh, premise of uh, this particular book is this. If you're going to join a church, most people look at a church, joining a church, as in a country club. In other words, what can you do for me? And he says, no, that's not what the church is. When you join the church, it's not what, it, what can you do for me. Turn it around. It's actually what I can do for, say it, you. Think of what church would be like if every church member did that. They were concerned about everybody else. Paul said, don't just think about the things of yourself. Think about the things of others.
Number three, be conventional and unconventional. Look at verse 13. Be conventional and unconventional. For if we are beside ourselves, that would be unconventional, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. I love this phrase here, beside ourselves. You know what that means? Crazy. (laughs) It means nuts. It means I'm outside of my mind. It literally means, if you translate it literally, it means to stand outside of oneself. Jesus' own family said that he had lost his senses. Remember that? Back in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3, verse number 21. Jesus was called a drunkard in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19. They said that John the Baptist and Jesus were demon-possessed, yes? Yeah. In other words, he was, I mean, think about it. Jesus was unconventional in everything just about he did. One of the things that uh, some people, you know, and I'll say this, and some of you are going to go, oh, that is so gross. Jesus loved to use his own saliva. Spit. There are three instances in the New Testament where Jesus used spit to heal somebody. Isn't that cool? One, one. Uh, particular instance, he put he spit on the ground and made a little bit of mud, put it on the blind man's eyes and healed his eyes. And another one, he put some of his spit on a person's tongue and then put his fingers in his ears to heal him of his speech and his hearing. That is, that is crazy. All right? Now, if you go to your doctor tomorrow and he says, come here. <laughs> I don't think I'd go for that, Amen. <laughs> But that's what Jesus did. He was so unconventional about the things that he did. And we may need to get that way. I mean, think about it. Jesus spoke directly to demons. And not only did he speak directly to them, what did they do? They responded to him. They held a dialogue. That's pretty creepy. That's pretty unconventional. And that's what Paul is, is saying here. He healed every kind of disease. Jesus healed speaking. And uh, by speaking words, he healed by not speaking words. I mean, think about it. He cleansed the temple two times. Pretty unconventional, huh? I mean, he just went in there and he took to town. And you know what's interesting to me about that story when he cleansed those temples? There wasn't a single soul that was willing to stop him. And by the way, if they had tried, they'd been very unsuccessful, right? Unconventional. Unconventional, the things it is. You know, there's sometimes the normal things when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody that work. Sometimes we have to get unconventional with it too. It's okay to do things differently. I say it's okay to do things differently. It is. Oh, I hate change. Well, good thing somebody changed your diapers when you were a baby, amen? You start out changing from in the womb to outside the womb. Hello, there's a change. 98.6 degrees to, man, why do they got it so cold in this operating room, you know? It's okay to do things differently. Try what you've never done before. Listen, when you're sharing Christ with somebody, try what you've never done before. Maybe, maybe you've never prayed with someone before, it's out of the blue. Can I pray for you? Give it a shot. Get unconventional. I'm not saying get crazy. I'm just saying try something different. It might be you've never shared the gospel with somebody. It might be that you've never handed them a gospel tract before. It might be that you've never put one of those salvation invitation cards in your uh, bill whenever you uh, eat at a restaurant. It might be that. Get unconventional. Do it. Try it. You know what will happen? It's going to encourage you. It's going to bless you. You're going to say, you know what? I just did that. You know what that's going to remind you of? 
I can do it again. I can do it again. It might mean taking a plate of cookies to your next door neighbor. I've never done that before. Get unconventional. Jesus did. Paul was very unconventional. But try different things. Try different things. Whatever that might be. Ask yourself this question. Ask this in prayer. God, what can I do differently to reach that one? Lord, they see me out there mowing my yard. What can I do differently? Offer to mow theirs. I don't know. Actually going over and not waiting for them to, to come outside and meet you, but actually going over there and... Some of us have never done that with our neighbors and knocked on their door. Unconventional. Give it a shot. A fourth thing I see here is allow God's love to be the driving force. Look at verse 14. Allow God's love to be the driving force. What is the appealing recipe to allow God's love to move me? Verse number 14. For the love of Christ compels me. The word compel means to control. Some of your translations say control. The word means pressure that produces action. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me, it pressures me, because the love of God is so great that I've got to do this. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. I'm doing this because of what he's done, and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Allow God's love to be that, that motivating force. That, that, this is why it's so important to stay close uh, with the Lord because you, you experience his love, you experience his comfort, you experience his, his indwelling Holy Spirit as he ministers to you and touches you and speaks to you. By the way, that's where some of us fail. We're so out of touch with God, there's no love of God to compel us, to drive us to go across the street to speak to our next-door neighbor. Oh, we're doing the Christian thing and we're being nice people, but that's where it ends. We've got to learn to turn the corner of that street of nicety and go to the street of Evangelism Boulevard and start doing what God has called us to do, you see. Philippians 1, 7 and 8. Greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul had a love that drove him for the Philippian people. And that love came from God. God's love drove Paul. I mean, think about it. It drove Paul to travel the world to speak God's love and God's grace, to speak of his three, uh, those three, or some say four, missionary journeys. In fact, I'll tell you what. Stop here. with. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Just go a few pages over. You want to see how... Paul was controlled and driven by the love of God. You've heard these verses before, but I think it, we would do well to be reminded. 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 21. To our shame, Paul says, I say that we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also, speaking of the gospel. Are they Hebrews? Me too. Are they Israelites? Yep, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? Yep, that's me, so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Boy, I'm just not a minister. I'm more than that. I am more in labors, more abundant. 
in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers. I've been, I've been robbed before. In perils of my own countrymen, my own people. In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleepiness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Watch this now. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. What compelled him? The love of Christ. I'm driven so much to the point so much to the point, folks, you didn't want to follow Paul around, amen? You follow him around, you talk in trouble, amen? That's what's coming down your way. You follow the apostle Paul around. God's love drove him. What does is, what is your love for God drive you to do for God? Is it that heavy duty in your life? Are you that passionate about what Jesus has done? Let me make something very clear, church. God loves you, and he bankrupt heaven for you. Amen? He sent his only begotten son to this earth for you. God loves you. Lastly and finally, the amazing result, verse 15, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What's the amazing result? And he died for all that those who should live, live no longer, watch this, no longer live for themselves before salvation, but for him who died for them and rose again. What is that amazing result? Lives are gloriously changed, purposefully lived to bring glory to an awesome God. Amen? That's where God wants us. For people's lives to be transformed, for people's lives to be changed. You know, uh, I've been a Christian since I was 12. It was then that I accepted Christ at camp. That was my testimony, and I'm not going to go through all that. You've heard that before. But I thank God that over, let's see, I'm 55 now, 55 minus 12, 43, right? 43-ish years. Over those 43 years, I have had the opportunity to lead a lot of people to Christ. Let me tell you something, church, there's nothing like it. Amen? And if you've led somebody to the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing like it. The first young man that I led to Christ, his name was Kenny Cash. Tall, thin, African-American kid in our school, played basketball. He was our star basketball player. I got to lead him to Christ. That was so cool. That was the first person I ever led to Christ. Since then, man, I led... Boys and girls and moms and dads to Christ through our bus ministry at our church growing up there at Calvary Baptist Temple in, in Montgomery, Alabama. I led people to Christ doing door-to-door salvation, visitation. Um, I remember one time our church, we were helpers at a, some of you remember this name, Jack Van Empey Crusade. We filled up the Montgomery Civic Center. No, actually, it was, I think it was, yeah, it was Montgomery Civic Center. We filled it, I mean, we packed that place out for a week, and I was one of their counselors. 
and I got an opportunity to lead people to Christ. The coolest thing in the world to see literally hundreds of people just coming to receive Christ. Leading people to the Lord at the ball field. Leading people to the Lord in my office, in the hallways around here, in the parking lots, at gas stations, ball fields. Let me tell you something, folks. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And every time that happens and we finally say our our goodbyes, I think I, I shared with you, in fact, I know I shared with you the young lady I led to the Lord at the racetrack there in Pensacola, Florida here a month or so ago whenever I was there. And I remember just, because I didn't want to talk to her. Man, I got to get home. I got a seven-hour drive awaiting me. I got to get out of here. But she needed the Lord, and I shared the Lord with her. She accepted Christ. That seven-hour drive took me four and a half hours. I'm just kidding. It didn't. (laughs) But you know what? When I hit I-110, they got on to I-10. Woo! (laughs) I was feeling good. Because another one had been added to the kingdom of heaven. You know, Scripture tells us that when just one is added to the kingdom of heaven, that angels rejoice. You know what I think? I think that there is a constant party in heaven. Because I cannot imagine, out of seven and a half billion people and the believers that are all over the world, I can imagine that every second of every day, somebody's getting added to the kingdom. Now, if angels rejoice at just one getting added to the kingdom, and somebody's getting saved every moment of every day, what does that tell you what's going on in heaven? Oh, we're just all walking around in our long white robes, and we're just holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and we're just being quiet and respectful. I don't think so. I think it is a party. Amen? Because people receive King Jesus. Listen, why do we do what we do? Because we've got to persuade men. We've got to persuade men. There's a Savior who died for them. There's a God who loves them. I'll share this story with you, and then I'm done. It's a church in uh, Chandler, Arizona. Brother Steve, I don't know if you know where that's at or not. Chandler, Arizona. Uh, First Christian church there. Oh, yeah? Really? How about that? Well, the pastor at First Christian church there, his name is Roger Storms, he tells the story of uh, after church, there was this guy one Sunday, uh, his car had broken down, and it kind of broke down in the alley right behind the church. And so he'd got his jack out and raised that thing up, and he was trying to fix the car. Well, the jack broke while he was under it, and the car collapsed right on top of him. And it just so happened there were some church members that were just happened to be walking down near that alley, and they could see what had happened as it happened. And right away, people just rushed. Some men rushed to pick up. And this, the, according to his description, it was a rather old, large car. You know how you know, they don't make them like they used to kind of cars? It was one of those from back in the 70s. It was an older car. And it took several men to lift that thing up. And finally, they were able to pull this guy out. And it just so happened at his church that he had several RNs, registered nurses, that were able to come and, and tend to him. And fortunately, he, some bumps, bruises, a little bit of blood. But he, overall, he was, he was just fine. But he made this comment. He said, you know, wouldn't it be something if the church would understand the peril that people are in? They're stuck under the heavy weight of sin. And unless someone lifts that weight, unless someone pulls them out of that, they will die without Christ and spend eternity separated from God. 
and him watching all those people just jump into action right away to save this man. He compared it to how we as believers should jump into action and persuade men. Let's pray. We persuade men. We persuade men for heaven. You know, I don't know if you know Christ is your Savior or not. I hope that you do. But if you're here today and you're not sure if you're going to heaven or not, if, you, if something were to happen and you had to stand before God today and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? Would you be like the Apostle Paul? Would you say, well, it's, my, it's my good works. I've obeyed the law. I was a good religious person. I'm here to tell you that's not good enough. Not even close. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you can get into heaven. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a holy life because he's God. He never sinned. He always obeyed his parents. He always made the right decisions. He was sinless. And then he went to a cross the Bible says that he became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty for that sin. You know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus took that death upon himself. He experienced the wrath of God in your place and in my place. He died for you and in your place. Why? so that you could have a relationship with him so that you could have an opportunity for your sins to be forgiven if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your savior I've got great news for you you can call out to him today and receive him as your personal savior you can ask him into your life and he can become the one who saves you from sin, saves you from hell, saves you from God's judgment and saves you for an eternity in heaven would you call out to him this morning? Just in the quietness of this moment, would you just quietly just talk to the Lord? Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I realize I cannot go to heaven on my own. But God, as best I know how, I want to believe on Jesus today. I want to repent of my sins, turn from my sin and myself, and God, turn to you and give you my life do that this morning? Would you call out to him to say, dear God, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. Oh God, please come into my life and save me. I believe in you. The Bible says that if you call out to him from your heart, believe on him from your heart, that he will save you, will you? Believers, Lord gave us the great commission and that great commission is simply this persuade men make disciples go are you persuading people with the gospel are you passionate about the gospel God speak to us during this invitation time may we be passionate about the one thing that is more important than any other thing that is your love and your message and your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name.